All right, take your Bibles and turn to Jonah chapter 4. Jonah chapter 4. As you turn there, this has nothing to do with the message, but I heard a story once about a man who went to the airport. He went up to the luggage counter and he said, I've got these three bags. I want one sent to Florida, one sent to Brazil, and one sent to Australia. The lady kind of looked at him in shock. She's like, we don't do that here. He said, well, you did last time. (laughs) On that same note, we got back from our trip yesterday. We went to go find our bags. We got a couple of our bags, and the the one bag didn't come out, so we went and checked with the baggage lady. And apparently that bag didn't want to be done with vacation yet. So it's currently in Doha, Qatar. So (laughs) it's on its way back as we speak, hopefully. So, in Jonah chapter 4, it's been a minute since we last looked at Jonah, but by way of quick review, I've got a basic outline of the book for you. One point for each book, and it's even alliterated. I guess today's the the day of alliteration. But chapter 1, we see Jonah planning. Chapter 2, we see Jonah praying. Chapter 3, we see Jonah preaching. And then here in chapter 4, we see Jonah pouting. So in Jonah chapter 1, we saw Jonah planning. God had sent Jonah to go to Nineveh and preach to the Ninevites because of their wickedness. Then we saw Jonah's disobedience, his rebellion, how he went to try to escape God and and took a ship. Obviously, we know that didn't work. God sent the storm and the great fish then to swallow Jonah. In chapter 2, we saw Jonah praying as he was there in the middle of the the Mediterranean Sea, sitting at the bottom of the, the stomach of the fish, and praying to God. And we saw God make the fish vomit Jonah back up onto dry ground. Then in Jonah chapter 3, we saw Jonah preaching as he went and finally obeyed God's command when God came back to him a second time and gave him the commission to go back to Nineveh or to go to Nineveh as he was supposed to in the first place and preach to them. We saw Jonah do as he was commanded. We saw him preach his message and we saw the response of the Ninevites that from the greatest all the way down to the least of them, they repented. And then we saw what God did in response to their repentance. We saw him repent of the evil that he had in store for them that he had determined to do to the Ninevites. And that brings us to chapter 4. And we jump right into it at the very beginning. talks about Jonah's reaction to the events of chapter 3. So we'll read the chapter and then we'll get into it this evening. It's Jonah chapter 4 starting in verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was very angry. And he prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore I fled before unto Tarshish. For I knew that thou art a gracious God, and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repentest thee of the evil. Therefore now, O Lord, take, uh, take, I beseech thee, my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Then said the Lord, Doest thou well to be angry? So Jonah went out of the city, and sat on the east side of the city, and there made him a booth, and sat under it in the shadow, till he might see what would become of the city. And the Lord God prepared a gourd, and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shadow over his head to deliver him from his grief. So Jonah was exceeding glad of the gourd. But God prepared a worm when the morning rose the next day, and it smote the gourd, that it withered. And it came to pass when the sun did arise, that God prepared a vehement east wind, and the sun beat upon the head of Jonah, that he fainted, and wished in himself to die, and said, It is better for me to die than to live. And God said unto Jonah, Doest thou well to be angry for the gourd? And he said, I do well to be angry, even unto death. Then said the Lord, Thou hast had pity on the gourd, for which thou hast not labored, neither madest it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should not I spare Nineveh, 
thy great city, wherein are more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand, and also much cattle. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we have to gather in your presence, in your house, and the opportunity that we have to look into your word. Father, we thank you for the great lessons that you have for it, for us in your word, that you've given it to us for us to study, to understand. I pray that as we study this passage that we would seek with an open mind to know what it is that you'd have us to do in our lives as a result of what we see in this passage. I pray that you'd be blessed, that you'd be honored and glorified as we look in this passage, that you would be honored by our reaction to it, and that we would humble ourselves before you and uh, seek to be the, the best uh, children that we can be to you and the most obedient and to draw closer to you and to be more like you than we are. Father, as we see Jonah and his mistakes and we see the things that he did wrong, I pray that you'd help us not simply to look down on him for his his issues that he had, but that we would see where we are alike unto him in many ways in our lives and that, that we'd be challenged to change those. I pray that you'd uh, be glorified and honored through this evening, through the message, and uh, that your people would be challenged and be edified through it. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. As we look at this passage, I've got four points and an application. The points are... Um, very simple. They're basically the highlights of the chapter. They're pretty brief as well. But we see first off Jonah's tantrum. Then we'll see after that God's question to Jonah. Then we see Jonah's lookout or his surveillance as he looks at, uh, watches the city and then God's providence. We'll look at those in that order. So first of all, we see Jonah's tantrum. As I said in the passage, it starts right off with Jonah's reaction. In chapter three, he had preached his very simple message to the Ninevites, and we saw the reaction from them. The king proclaimed that there would be a fast and mourning throughout the whole city, from uh, all the way from him and his advisors down to the least of them, all the way to the cattle as well. And the whole city mourned for their wickedness, and God repented of the evil that he was in the destruction that he was going to send upon the city. And Jonah was very displeased by that. Now, a preacher's job is to simply preach the word. It may not be popular. It may not be well-received. In fact, when it came to these, the minor prophets, oftentimes the message was not well-received at all. They were persecuted. They were hated. Many times they were killed. But when it comes to Jonah, he's not your typical run-of-the-mill minor prophet. I mentioned this before, but with most of the minor prophets, if you'll look at the substance of the book, much of it is the message that was, he was to preach. God telling him, go to this group of people and tell them this. And that that preacher would go there and he would preach. And, and much of the content of the book would be the, the, the message that he was preaching. And that wasn't so with Jonah. In fact, the message was only eight words, a very simple message. The, va- the vast majority of the book is God and the way that he dealt with Jonah, both before he went to Nineveh as well as during and after his time in Nineveh. And just like the book doesn't fit the mold, the reception of the message that Jonah preached doesn't fit the mold. The smallest to the greatest in that whole city repented. In verse 11, God refers to 120,000 people who do not know their right hand from their left. It's surmised that this is talking about just the number of children, young children, that were there in the city. If that's the case, that would mean the city held up to a million or more people that were there. So to preach a message that more than a million people responded to and repented from would be an extraordinary thing. And even nowadays, you have preachers that preach and amongst Christians maybe not be well received. But amongst heathens, all of them repented. 
including the king himself. And yet Jonah didn't think of any of those sort of things. He didn't have a care for the people that he preached to. We know that. He hated them. He wanted to see them be destroyed. He didn't have a care for what God wanted, obviously, because he rebelled against God and his commandment for him to go to Nineveh. All he could think about was the fact that things didn't work out the way that Jonah wanted them to work out. Jonah wanted the Ninevites to die. He wanted them to be destroyed. He believed that they deserved destruction, and really they did. But since that was what he wanted, there was no worse punishment for him than to be the one to deliver the message that would cause them to repent and to have God's evil turned away from them. It was almost like Haman. Remember back in Haman and Esther's time, he was so self-absorbed. He was so wrapped up in himself. He wanted to be honored by the king and he hated um, Mordecai and how much it must have stung for him not only to not be honored by the king, but to be the one who had to go and honor his enemy, Mordecai. And so with Jonah, with his attitude, nothing would have been worse than for him to have to deliver this message of basically repentance to the Ninevites and see them repent from their wickedness. Now, not only is Jonah upset at the response of the Ninevites, he's upset at God, and he makes an excuse for why he disobeyed in the first place. And we see that excuse there in verse number two. He said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore I fled before unto Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and repentest thee of the evil. Basically, he's saying, God, this is what I was thinking when I was still at home, sitting on my couch, basically, before you came to me, or when you told me to go to Nineveh. This is what my thought was then, is I knew that you're a good God. I knew that you're gracious, that you're merciful. He took five attributes of God and used them to accuse him. He said he's gracious, merciful, slow to anger, kind, and forgiving. And Jonah turned those things almost into bad things. He almost weaponized those things against God and said, I knew that you're this. I knew that you're that. I knew that you're all these things. And then Jonah asks God to kill him because he thinks that it's better for him to die rather than to go on existing. Now, as Jonah launches into this tirade, it's almost comical, almost one of those times where you might expect God to just put up his hand and tell Jonah, stop. But he doesn't. He lets Jonah vomit out of the mouth all of his all of his problems jonah was kind of like one of those wind-up toys you know you wind it up and then you just let it go and it's gonna go until it stops and god just let him empty his lungs out it reminds me sometimes of how in the psalms the psalmist would talk about how he was just pouring out his complaint to god he needed to get it off of his chest whether it was good or bad this kind of gives us insight into what jonah was thinking how he was feeling there's nothing more honest than a man like jonah who feels like he's got nothing to live for nothing to lose and he's just telling it like it is like he thinks it is he was he was upset frankly so as jonah has his tantrum here god allows him to have his have a saying and and say what he wanted to say his peace and then god simply answers with a question we would have been god would have been more than justified in rebuking Jonah for what he did or for what he was saying, for punishing Jonah for his rebellion. Yet we don't see that. All we see is God asking the simple question in verse number four, doest thou well to be angry? And the way that I read it, it almost, in the written word, it's hard to tell, you know, the tone in which this was said. But I kind of get the idea that it was said very gently and very tenderly and very, maybe in a thought-provoking type of manner. Doest thou well to be angry, Jonah? 
And why would God ask this question? I can't say for sure, but I expect that it was intended to get Jonah to change his perspective on things. He wanted to show Jonah a proper perspective of, of what had happened and what he, was, what he was seeing. God didn't launch into this monologue of why he did this and why he did that. He didn't have to. I think with this simple question, God got his point across, even though Jonah was unwilling to receive the point at that time. He didn't respond to it. But the point was communicated. Essentially, God told Jonah, consider your ways, Jonah. Why are you angry? God might have come to Jonah and said, you know what, Jonah, I gave you a clear command and you disobeyed it. You violated it. In my mercy, I sent a storm to bring you back. I sent the whale to swallow you up. That way you didn't drown out there in the storm. I could have left you there, but I didn't. I sent the, the, the whale to vomit you back onto dry ground. And I entrusted you again with the message that I gave to you the first time that you, that you botched, really, the, the first commission that I gave to you. And then I brought you to the Ninevites and you preached to them. And I gave you a great results. The king, even, the king of the most powerful nation in the world, was brought to his knees. Even though you're just a washed up preacher and you're mad about that, Jonah... God could have asked all of that, but he didn't. He simply asked that very simple question, and he left it at that. It was the rebuke that Jonah needed at the time. Now, God had already dealt with Jonah's previous rebellion in going, trying to go to Tarshish and getting in that ship. He dealt with it before, so God didn't bring that up again. He, didn't, he, he put it behind him. He didn't continue to bring it up like old laundry to show Jonah, hey, remember that time you did this? God is simply dealing with Jonah's attitude and his problem at that moment in time. His question was very simple and deep. And I think Jonah understood exactly what God meant by that. But we don't see him respond to that. We see his, what Jonah responds and what he does next is instead of bothering to respond to God's question, um, because really what kind of response could he give to that? There wasn't really a good one. Um, Jonah stomps off to the outside of the city. He plops himself down on the east side of the city and then makes this little booth. Must have been pretty hot because he made that booth to sit under the shade of it. And then he watched to see what would happen. Um, I don't know if he was ex- what he was expecting to see, if he was maybe expecting to see the Ninevites go back to their ways or, or what, what, was, what he was expecting. But he just sat there and watched. But it seemed like uh, not too much was going on except for the sun seemed to get hotter and hotter. And probably the hotter it got, the more Jonah stewed and the more upset he got. And so he just sat there in a discontented state watching to see what would happen. And then we see God's response to that and what God does after that. We see that God was about to teach Jonah some things. So we see three things that God prepared in order to teach Jonah. A sort of object lesson that God was preparing for Jonah. In an object lesson... um, Everyday objects are used to teach a deeper spiritual truth, sometimes well, sometimes not. I'm sure we've all seen our fair share of object lessons, but we see a really good one here. God prepares three different things for Jonah. First, he prepared that gourd. So Jonah was there in the heat under his booth just watching to see what would happen in, in, the, in the sun. And remember, just the area that, that we're speaking of here in Nineveh is around the area of modern-day Mosul in Iraq. So very hot climate, very dry, probably desert-type environment. Um, so God prepared this gourd. I don't know exactly what type of plant it would have been, um, but it grew up very quickly and it, it provided some shade for Jonah. And so as this gourd grew up, Jonah was very glad about the gourd. He must not have been very good at building huts because if he had his, his hut and his booth there and it was providing some good shade, then he wouldn't have had to worry about the gourd. But when the gourd came up, he was very glad about that. Um, and it gave Jonah a lot of shade 
And he was very happy with that. So God prepared that gourd for Jonah. After all the good things that God did for Jonah and all the the good things that God did through Jonah, there sat Jonah pouting and, and sitting and watching. And then God had added to the good things that he did to Jonah by providing him with this gourd. It made Jonah very glad. It was what Jonah needed. It was what he desired. And God gave it to him. Now, it's interesting to note, God, or Jonah had accused God of being good and of being gracious and of being merciful, slow to anger. And here, Jonah didn't deserve God's mercy. He didn't deserve God's goodness. He didn't deserve his long-suffering. And yet, he was getting it. Jonah was an undeserving recipient of God's goodness here. And just like the Ninevites, Jonah didn't earn it. He didn't do anything good to receive God's goodness. But God gave it to him anyway. Even as selfish as he was at the time, God didn't give Jonah this gourd to reward him for his good behavior or anything, but because he was good to him. Jonah didn't see God's goodness here and thank him for it. He didn't repent of his own wickedness. He just continued to sit there and sulk and pout. So God prepared that gourd, which was a thing of blessing to Jonah. It was indeed an act of God's providence towards Jonah. But while we often think of God's providence in terms of good things, and blessings and God working out things for our good. It's not only limited to that. In God's providence, he also prepared a second thing. And that was the worm, which in turn destroyed the gourd which God had created. It destroyed the gourd, but not only did it destroy the gourd, it destroyed all of the joy that Jonah had received from the gourd, leaving him angry. He was angry at God for that. Now, if that wasn't enough, that they say when it rains, it pours. God sent another thing that he had prepared. God sent the east wind to smite Jonah. Now remember, Jonah was on the east side of the city. This wind was an east wind, so coming from the east. He didn't have the benefit of the city blocking him from this east wind. And I can only imagine that it was like a hot wind, kind of like the type that comes out of the oven when you open it. Very hot, not not a refreshing kind of wind. So Jonah didn't have the benefit of the gourd or the city to to provide him with any shade or or shadow of this from this great wind that was coming and obviously his booth that he created probably fell down around him as well so god was the author of the blessing in this with the gourd but also the author of the destruction and all the author of the wind but what was the purpose of these hardships was it why would god give something good to jonah only to take it away was it a punishment upon jonah it may have been but i don't really think it was as i mentioned before i think that these three things that god prepared for jonah were an object lesson for him God was trying to teach Jonah and prepare Jonah to hear what it was that God had to say. The fact is that by God doing this, by God preparing this object lesson for Jonah, it really showed that God wasn't done with Jonah yet. He orchestrated this whole thing, the gourd, the worm, the wind, to show Jonah, to teach Jonah, to make him better. It had the same purpose of other trials that people go through, and that's to purify This trial, though, it seemed to bring out a lot of dross in Jonah to show us and him really his foolishness. The Bible here is pretty transparent. It doesn't cover for Jonah. It doesn't try to paint him in a good light or anything like that. It doesn't hide anything. It lays Jonah bare for all to see. His reaction to all of this reveals much dross in his life. Now, I'm sure Jonah was pretty physically uncomfortable. Um, He was hot. He had traveled a long ways. He had been sitting in the the whale's belly for three days and three nights he had had a long journey and all those sorts of things but really was his life really that bad 
Was it really so terrible what it was that happened to Jonah? Enough that he would wish to die? I kind of get the feel that Jonah might have been overreacting a little bit here. That he was maybe being a little bit dramatic. And I mean, I wasn't there, so I can't imagine. But, um, but as we sit here and judge him with 2020 hindsight, he seems like a drama queen here. Um, I get that he hated the Ninevites and that he really wanted them to be destroyed and he didn't get his way with that. I get that he was probably uncomfortable sitting in the wind. And he was probably already beaten up physically and mentally from the whole uh, ordeal with the whale. But part of me just wants to go back to Jonah and slap him and say, come on, man, man up a little bit. Stop sulking like a little girl here. But as I mentioned, with God preparing the gourd and the worm and the wind and all of, all of it, I don't think those were the only things that God was preparing. I think in the, all of this, he was preparing Jonah. They're an object lesson to Jonah to teach him. And here's the mercy in all of this. When Jonah disobeyed God the first time, God could have and would have been justified in letting Jonah just go and do his own thing or destroying Jonah at that point. But he didn't. When Jonah was cast into the sea, he would have been more than justified in letting Jonah sink to the bottom. But he didn't. When Jonah was sitting in the whale's belly, he was more than justified in allowing him to just rot away there for the rest of his short life. But he didn't. He brought Jonah back. He sent him again to Nineveh. Um, And he didn't let Jonah, even after this whole ordeal, after preaching to the Ninevites, he didn't let Jonah just sulk off into the sunset, never to be heard of again. God could have let him do all those things, but he didn't. He took it upon himself to teach Jonah, even in this, which was a very unteachable moment in Jonah's life. And just what was the lesson to Jonah? I think there are a few different lessons for Jonah here. One is that God's mercy and his goodness is extended to unworthy people. Jonah saw that done in the Ninevites' lives, but God was showing that to Jonah as well in providing him goodness with the gourd. He didn't deserve it. Jonah was undeserving of all those sorts of things, and anything good that God would give him would have been given undeserved. But God gave that gourd to Jonah just as God gave repentance and forgiveness to the people of Nineveh. Neither the Ninevites nor Jonah deserved God's goodness or his mercy, and yet God gave it. Another is that God was showing Jonah the foolishness of being upset at the destruction of this little gourd that grew up in a night and perished in a night, just a little bit of a, a little plant, that Jonah would be foolish to be upset over that, and yet not upset over the fact that nearly, or if not more than a million people repented and were saved. And I think the the main lesson that God was showing to Jonah here is that God is God, and Jonah was not. God's the one that sends the blessings. He's the one that also takes them away. We remember in Job's life when he really went through, I, I would say, a whole lot worse things than Jonah did. But he said, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He had the proper attitude, the proper perspective on this. Jonah in all of this didn't have that proper perspective here and i think that's what god was trying to teach him i'm the one that gives good gifts i'm the one that can take them away and no man is to judge me for those things that i decide to do who are you to question who i extend my mercy to i decided to give mercy to the ninevites you're not the one to judge and decide whether or not i should have done that who is he who would question god and i think that's what god was showing to jonah now the more i studied jonah and would and read through the passage and such, the more I I come to the conclusion um, that Jonah probably is the one that wrote this book. And that leads me to believe that 
After all this, as, as I mentioned before, God wasn't done with Jonah. As you read this, if you read this with the eye that Jonah is the one that read this book, you can almost see um, a sense of remorse from Jonah over the, the way that he acted, being that he wrote so very clearly the things that he did, um, his actions and, and how they're laid bare here. Almost the way that you might cringe when you talk to somebody about a mistake that you made or something stupid that you did one time. It's kind of what, uh, what Jonah is doing here by writing this. I get the feeling that by the way Jonah was handling, uh, or the, the way that God was handling Jonah here, that he was still preparing Jonah, that he wasn't done with Jonah yet, that he still had more work for him to do. Why would God take the time to continue to teach Jonah if he intended just to cast him off at a later time? I don't think that, that God was intending to do that. Now, we don't have record of what happened to Jonah after this, of what great things he did or didn't do, but um, we're not meant to know that. But I, the, the greater lesson here that we can see is that God is patient with his people, and that's a blessing that we can, we can see, and we'll get into that here in a little bit. Um, but we see God's goodness towards Jonah here. Now, if from this message you get the idea that we should look at God's faithfulness, his goodness, his mercy, as a, a reason to just do whatever we want because God's going to come back for us and restore us. We've got the wrong idea if that's the message that you've gotten. None of that's the point. The point here is that God didn't have to do any of these things for Jonah. God didn't have to go back to Jonah and use him. God didn't have to come back and teach Jonah. He didn't have to care for him the way that he did. And yet he did. And he was under no obligation to do that. He wasn't forced to do that. But he did it because he wanted to. The point is what he wants to accomplish. I can't say why God this, did this for Jonah, um, just as I can't say why God gave Nineveh a chance to repent when he didn't do the same for Sodom and Gomorrah and for multitudes of other wicked cities that God destroyed. And so as we look at this passage, what are we to learn from this passage? What are we to learn from Jonah? I've got a number of things. To me, they seem kind of jumbled and random, no particular order, but I hope that among these you might find a, a challenge for yourself as we look and seek to apply the passage. So first off, as we look at Jonah, and we look at his discontentment with his situation, with everything that happened, I find that sometimes I'm in the same boat as he is, in the same mindset. Look at my circumstances and maybe unhappy about those sorts of things. In our society today, we, we especially have this epidemic of discontentment among people. Um, very much we're about instant gratification, having what we want and having it now. Um, having every comfort, having every new thing that comes out. We have so much. We have it so good, really. We, we're very blessed here. And yet we can be amongst the most discontent type of society that there is. We have everything that we need and more. I saw a cartoon a, while, a long time ago. I was trying to find it again. I couldn't find it, but it illustrates this perfectly. It was a, a picture of a fancy yacht that was docked, and next to the yacht was a, uh, a road, and there was a very nice car on that road. Next to that car was kind of an old beat-up car. Next to that car was a bicycle. Next to the bicycle was a guy that was walking on the sidewalk, and in a building nearby, there was a guy looking from the window, looking out. And so... You see a guy on the, on the yacht that's over here, and he's looking out to see at some other bigger yacht, and he's saying, man, I wish I had a bigger yacht than the one that I have. And then 
in the car, the fancy car that's driving down the road, you've got the guy sitting in the car. He's thinking to himself, wow, I really wish that I had a yacht like that one. And the guy that's in the older beat-up car is looking at the guy with the nice car saying, man, I really wish that I had a nice car like that one. The guy on the bicycle is looking at the guy in the car, in the old beat-up car, saying, man, I wish I could afford a car. The guy that's walking is looking at the guy on the bike saying, man, I wish I could have a bicycle so I didn't have to walk everywhere. And then the guy up in the window, you see that he's actually in a hospital in casts and all of that, looking outside and thinking, man, I wish I could walk. And the idea there is that no matter what station you are in life, wherever you're at, you can always look at somebody else and see what they've got and wish that you had what they have. No matter what condition you're in, you can always find a reason to be discontent if you want to. And yet we shouldn't have that, have that attitude. We should look at the things that we have and be thankful for them. Now, I think it's natural for us sometimes to look at our circumstances. Sometimes bad things happen and be upset at those things and wish that we weren't going through that. Wish that things were better. Wish that we had this or wish that we had that. Wish that maybe this would happen or that would happen or wish that this other thing hadn't happened. But regardless of what it is, no matter where you are in life, you can look around and you can be discontented if you want to. Now, I understand that sometimes bad things happen to us. Things aren't going well. But often the problem isn't our circumstances. It's not the situation that we find ourselves in. It's the perspective that we have about the whole situation. That's where Jonah found himself in the wrong place. Wherever he was, he had the wrong perspective about it. He was sitting at home and God gave him the commission to go to Nineveh. He was upset about it because he didn't want to go to Nineveh. So he tried to run away from God. God brings him back to Nineveh, restores him. He could have been rejoicing. Honestly, he should have been rejoicing in the fact that God came back to him and gave him a second chance to go and preach to the Ninevites. Yet he didn't. He was upset that he still had to go to Nineveh. He went and preached to Nineveh, and they repented. He could have been very happy that God used him and the great things that God did through him. And yet he wasn't. He was discontent in those sorts of things. He left the city, and he sat under his booth, and God sent him the gourd. He could have been reflecting there upon God's goodness and changed his perspective on that, and yet he didn't. And over and over and over, no matter what situation we found Jonah in, he was discontent with the station that he had in his life. He was discontent with his surroundings and the circumstances that's, that he was under. So what I, I see in this world are some of the people that have it the most well off. They've got the best things. They've got the, the greatest things. And so... Our perspective is, is very important when it comes to this. And our, our circumstances and our joy shouldn't be determined by the things that we have. Our joy shouldn't be determined by the circumstances that we find ourselves in. Because if we did that, one day we'd be up, one day we'd be down. Another day would be great, another day would be terrible. Our, our joy and our happiness shouldn't be wrapped up in things and circumstances. That shouldn't be the determining factor. obeyed God, but rather than who was preaching. But he was so self-centered, so worried about himself, that all he could do was pout when things didn't go his way. Now, I'm not saying that all of us need to walk around with a cheesy smile on our face everywhere that we go and act like everything's a-okay. But we really need to learn to count our blessings at times. Everyone here has problems. Everyone does. We've all had bad, bad days. But for every problem that you have, I could show you somebody else that has it ten times worse than you do. And if you're always comparing to see who's got it worse, then it's just going to make things compound and, and become even worse for you. It's all about the perspective. All about the perspective here. God was teaching Jonah to change his perspective. Change your perspective on what's happened here. Jonah was so self-centered and he was so worried about himself 
that when things didn't go his way, that just completely ruined his, way, his, his life, really. He thought that it would be better for him to die. The problem with discontentment is that when we're discontent, we neglect to see God for who he is. We have an elevated view of who we are. We're not content because we think that we deserve better. I think that things aren't going the way that I think they should. I view myself as more highly than I ought. So what's the solution? Don't take yourself so seriously. Don't think so highly of yourself. Now, obviously, it's much easier said than done. It's so natural to be discontent. It's natural to look after number one and to want what's best for me. But the problem is when we elevate our status above what it should be, and we elevate ourselves above God, that becomes a serious problem. How can we worship God properly when we see his attributes, the good things about God, his goodness, his mercy, his faithfulness, his being slow to anger, as a bad thing like Jonah did? When Jonah was looking at God's goodness and his good attributes as things to blame God for, how could he worship God? How could he have a proper view of who he was? How can we humble ourselves when we're focused too much on ourselves? It's a dangerous place to be in when we're elevated in our own mind and we think that we should always have our own way. When it comes to God's goodness, we just saw how Jonah attempted to weaponize it against God. But instead of punishing Jonah, God used his goodness. The thing that that Jonah was weaponizing against God, he used his goodness with Jonah. Instead of rebuking Jonah, he asked him a question. Intended to, to check Jonah, to get him to consider his perspective. Um, we should be very careful to use God's attributes to praise him and bless him, not to blame him. Amen. I think in Jonah's um, situation that he found himself in, that he was having a, a sort of tunnel vision. In my line of work, it's something that we get trained on, especially in high-stress situations. You've got tunnel vision. It happens. In a, it's a physiological response to a, a dynamic situation, such as maybe a gunfight or a fistfight or something like that. Your body focuses on things that it deems to be important at the time, um, sometimes to the detriment of other things. It's an interesting phenomenon, but uh, it's been studied. Um, there's a, a guy who wrote a whole book on it just about... Some of the physiological responses to combat, where when, a, when somebody is involved in combat, different things happen with their senses. One such thing is tunnel vision, where vision becomes very acute and very, very distinct and very strong. And other things, maybe such as hearing or smell, kind of disappear and, and you're not able to hear, you're not able to smell things. Maybe time slows down. Different sorts of weird things that happen, physiological responses. Um, to these sorts of things. But with tunnel vision, one thing that happens is you lose your peripheral vision, or at least your ability to process things that are happening in your peripherals. And you're laser focused on one thing and you kind of lose perspective. Now, in some things, it might be very good to have that. But on other things, it can be very detrimental and harmful. In a situation like this, Jonah was target locked on the one thing that, that wasn't going his way, or the idea that things were not going his way. And by Focusing on that single thing, he lost the big picture. And he forgot that God's the one that has the big picture on things. And that he's just a little cog in the big picture here. And Jonah's little cog became the big cog, which became the big picture to him. And he was focused so much on those things that he forgot that maybe God's doing something else that's more important than my, my, uh, my motives and my, uh, what I want right now. Doest thou well to be angry? God said to Jonah, 
Open up your field of vision. Stop looking at just the little things and look at the wider picture. God was glorified in the repentance of the Ninevites, but Jonah didn't have any part of that because he was too busy worrying about himself. His perspective was off. Now, um, like I said before, I think Jonah was overreacting and being dramatic. And I'm not downplaying the fact that sometimes tragedies happen. Sometimes bad things happen to us. Maybe you go through a really hard trial. And I'm not saying that this is an issue here necessarily, but in our culture today, there's such a lack of grit sometimes. We want a safe space everywhere we go. We want to be validated. We, want to, uh, we can't deal with conflict. You know, something bad happened to me one time. Well, boo-hoo. Sometimes bad things happen. Sometimes bad things happen to good people. And honestly, really, we're not good people. There are no good people. We're vile sinners. So when bad things happen to us, do we really get to complain? Terrible things are going to happen. Get up. Dust yourself off. Maybe you deserved it, like Jonah. Maybe you didn't. But things happen. Are you a soldier of the cross or not? A soldier is called to endure hardship. And not all hardships that a soldier endures are because of things that he did to deserve it. And then as we consider Jonah, remember that really the story of Jonah can't be written without God. And that's obvious on two levels. Obviously on the first level, without God there would be no Jonah. But without God's intervention in Jonah's life, there would be no story worth telling about Jonah. It was all about God and how he dealt with Jonah here. And it's the same with us. Our story cannot be written without God. God is the center of the book of Jonah here. And he's central to your story as well. So don't live and act as if there is no God. Now all of us would, or at least should be, horrified at the idea of living as if there is no God. However, we often do that. Everything that we do, everything that we say, all of our actions, all of our life should be lived as if it was before God, because it is. Now remember how God prepared that gourd for Jonah? We would do well to remember that just as God sent that gourd to Jonah, that every good thing and every perfect gift is from above, comes from God. Um, Sometimes we're tempted to think that the good things that happen to us are because we've been good. Or because we've done this, I've worked hard, and I've uh, prepared this, or whatever. And sometimes that happens. But whenever something good happens to us, it's not because of us. It's because of God. God sent Jonah this gourd, and he was discontent. When Jonah was angry at God, when he was angry at God's forgiveness to the Ninevites, God didn't give Jonah this gourd to bless Jonah for his faithfulness. It wasn't a reward. It was grace. Spurgeon once said this, Whenever you get an it, do not let your gourd become your God, but let your gourd lead you to your God. When our comforts become our idols, they work a ruin. But when they make us bless God for them, then they become messengers from God, which help toward our growth in grace. God sends blessings and also he sends trials at just the right time in our lives. Never too early, never too late. There's the old song, Like a River Glorious. The third verse of that reads this, Every joy or trial falleth from above, traced upon our dial by the Son of Love. We may trust Him fully, all for us to do. They who trust Him wholly find Him wholly true. So just as God is the author of our blessings, He is also the author of our trials. Now let me be quick to point out that sometimes our trials are brought about by our own actions, by things that we do. And we cannot really blame anyone else for those things. But there's also times that you're trying to do everything right. You've had your devotions that day. You've had your devotions every day that week. 
you're faithful to God. You're trying to, to serve him sincerely. You're not just going through the motions of those things. And you're really working to try to serve God. And then something bad happens. Now, whether the trial or the bad thing that happens is a result of your own actions or not, whether it's the work of the devil, really, as in the case of Job, we can rest assured that God is in our losses as well as in our trials and, our, and the good times and the blessings. When bad things happen to you, don't be angry at God for what he allows to happen. It may be the most unfair, unjust, undeserved thing that happened to you. It may destroy you. It may strip you of everything that you have or everything that you have worked for or something like that. But God is still God. Now, it's easy to say. It's really easy to say. But when it comes to that point in your life where it feels like everything's falling apart, you must still say God is God. His ways are higher than my ways. He's God and I'm not. And he will do what brings him the most glory. Spurgeon pointed out something else interesting in regards to this passage. He pointed out that it's a popular belief that trials sanctify those who suffer through them. But while that's sometimes the case, it's not the trial itself that does it. There's nothing in the trial and the hardness itself that that brings you closer to God. It has to be God who does that. The trials and hard times have often made people harder against God and more upset at him and and bitter against God and worse than they were before. Um, Unless God sanctifies that trial to you and uses that trial in you, unless you allow God to have his way through that, as James puts it, letting patience have her perfect work, the trial in and of itself will profit you nothing. There's nothing in the suffering itself that makes you better. Anything more uh, or any more than joy makes you a better person. They're simply tools in God's hand that he uses. Um, You as the vessel, your job as God is the potter, is to submit under the mighty hand of God. Are you going through good times, as the Bible says? Let a a man sing psalms. Are you afflicted? Let let him pray. Are you going through trials? Bow your knee and bow your head before God. In the depths of your troubles, God is still God. I don't know this for sure, but I can only imagine that God is more glorified by his people glorifying him and worshiping him genuinely in the midst of their problems than by the token thank yous and thanksgivings that we give him in the good times. Jonah here went through some hard things, some of them brought about by his own foolishness. But what we, what caused Jonah to suffer even more was the fact that he wouldn't bow his knee, bow his head before God and submit to God. As we look at the example of how God dealt with Jonah, yes, we do see God's providence, which is an amazing thing. But we also see God's patience. Now, we all want God to be patient with us, and naturally so. We need his patience. But the model that we see from God here is essential for us in our interactions with each other, with our brothers and sisters in Christ. As in the model prayer, we're taught to ask God to forgive us of our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. In the same way, we're in need of God's mercy and his his patience towards us. Your brothers and sisters in Christ also also need God's patience towards them. And maybe in your mind you think some certain ones need a lot more patience than, than others. But freely have you received. You've freely received God's patience and his goodness towards you. Freely give. In your own life, you're very quick and easy to excuse yourself and to forgive yourself. You know, you'll say, oh, God's still sanctifying me. And he is, I hope. But you know what? God's also still sanctifying your brother 
or your sister in Christ. And the same patience that you afford yourself and expect from God, that's the same patience that you ought to have with other people around you. Give that to your fellow believers as well. As we all press towards that mark of, of the high calling of God, strive alongside your brother. Don't strive with him. So Jonah, what do we do with him? He was a successful disaster, or maybe we could call him a disastrous success or something like that. But instead of simply dismissing Jonah as a foolish child of God, look in your own life and see how, like Jonah, God has been more than gracious to you in many different ways. Rejoice in God's goodness. Praise him for it. Don't take it for granted and continue to press on and serve him.